Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. Hi, it's Susan Mitchell. I'm um, one of the uh, PIs of the NIA Impact Collaboratory, and I'm really pleased to have this podcast with Ellen McCready, Assistant Professor at the Center for Gerontology at Brown, who yesterday presented a terrific Grand Rounds entitled Using a Pilot Study, a Pilot to Test and Refine Your Measurement Strategy. So, hi, Ellen. Great to be with you today. Hi, Susan. Thank you for having me. Um, so I'm looking forward to our chance to, to chat a little bit more about uh, what you presented yesterday. Um, my first question is, you know, the Music and Memory program I know is an established program that's already used in many nursing homes around the country. Can you tell us a bit about its history and then how the fact that it's already somewhat widely used um, is either advantage or disadvantage in regards to doing this pragmatic trial? Yes, so the Music and Memory program, for those of your listeners who are not familiar with it, is where for people who live in nursing homes and have dementia, it's where you find the music that those people enjoyed when they were young adults. We say between the ages of 16 and 26, well, that tends to be when people are really into music and when, you know, you're going out to dances and maybe getting married and hanging out with your friends. Um, We try to find that music that you loved when you were young and we load it onto a personalized music device, so an MP3, iPod, those type of players. And then the nursing home staff are to use the music at early signs of agitation. So the idea is that by eliciting, um, and I, I think that a lot of us that know people with dementia understand that sometimes they don't know what they had for breakfast in the morning, but they remember you know, things about their prom or their wedding or early memories or their kids when they were young. Um, so it's kind of that re- idea of reminiscent therapies that bring back those memories could be very powerful for someone living with dementia who's in the later stages of dementia and may reduce agitation, agitated behaviors that are common in the disease and may re- be related to kind of the isolation that people with dementia experience. So that's kind of the idea of the intervention is that you're finding that early music and giving them those, those memories from an earlier time. And that just giving them those memories may reduce agitation. Um, and the reason that's important is that, you know, agitated behaviors can be very difficult for people that are living with people with dementia. So they're caregivers. And in the nursing home setting, they can be very difficult for staff that, you know, work with those residents day in and day out. So this idea that music is powerful is very attractive. We don't just sell people on that. And I think that's why the program, which was started by Dan Cohen, a social worker, uh, became so popular. There are actually thousands of nursing homes throughout the United States who have become certified in the music and memory program. And actually, there's a, there was a documentary called Alive Inside that was on Netflix and just showed the power to bring, you know, people who uh, virtually didn't speak anymore were singing their, their old songs that they loved and telling stories um, from, an, from a different time in their life. And I think it's the power of music in our own lives coupled with this documentary that have made the intervention 
you know, very widely adapted in U.S. nursing homes. So the advantage of this, and then I guess coupled with there's a, you know, big movement in the country to reduce drugs, antipsychotic use to manage these behaviors, agitated behaviors. So the idea that we could have this music program to manage behaviors was sort of a win-win. It's attractive to family members and, you know, it has an intrinsic appeal. And it also appeals to policymakers who want to find alternatives to using drugs to manage behaviors in dementia. So it has a lot of buy-in, but there's just, you know, not a lot of evidence. So even though it's been widely used, we just don't know if it actually, there's actually any evidence that it reduces behaviors. Well, great. Thanks. So um, have you chosen your own playlist for your music and memory iPod? I have already started and I tell people that like it's the hardest part is finding, you know, it's really challenging when you're already, you know, someone's in institutional care, like a nursing home is an institution. And um, sometimes they have a family member caregiver who's still quite active in their care, but oftentimes family members live far away or aren't as active in the care of people living in nursing homes that have dementia. And the person may be so far into their dementia course that they are unable to tell us what music they liked when they were younger. So it becomes, you know, this trial and error process of finding the music that um, someone loved when they were younger. And that's really challenging, especially, you know, when you're doing it one off, when you're just trying music and looking for a response in a person that has advanced dementia. So if I could give one piece of advice to listeners, go go start your playlist now. <laughs> Put it with your advanced directives, right? Yeah, exactly. Put it as part of your advanced directive. Give it to your kids if you have any. <laughs> Or someone that, uh, that will carry those wishes for you. Or just, well, the technology will change, so don't load an MP3 player now. <laughs> well, okay, let's move on to the RAP model. Um, the RAP model, the readiness for assessment of a pragmatic trial, is a framework to help decide whether an intervention is ready for a pragmatic trial. And I'll just run through the nine domains quickly to refresh our audience. Implementation protocol, evidence, risk, feasibility, measurement, cost, acceptability, alignment, and impact. So I know as, as you presented your grand rounds yesterday, you leveraged the pilot phase to try to get your intervention, in quotes, more ready for a full pragmatic trial. My question is, do you feel there's certain domains on the RAP that really have to be in place before even a pilot phase, um, and others that are really uh, ripe for modifying and improving during the pilot phase? Yeah, I think this is a question that's really important. And also, you're asking me, and I'll give you my answer, but I think there's a lot of debate with even in our teams that we're, we're thinking about applying this model. Um, what is the minimum? What's the minimum going into a pilot? What's the minimum going into a full trial? But I'll give you, you know, my opinion. So just to back, to, to back up and clarify, so on the impact, those domains where we scored highly going into our pilot for music and memory because of the uh, factors that I just described, we were we have high alignment, stakeholder alignment with using the music to reduce you know, medication use for managing behaviors, high acceptability, providers are already using it, they already want it, potential high impact, um, but we real and we knew we knew it was safe and we thought it was feasible. But where we really lacked a lot of information was on evidence. So there really wasn't a good efficacy base for music and memory. Um, 
and there wasn't a strong implementation protocol, so there wasn't a good step-by-step -step best practice. And what we talked about yesterday was the measurements. So we really didn't know if the behavioral outcomes of interest could be captured in the existing data. Would I say to someone that that's, <laughs> that not having efficacy evidence, you could move right into a pilot for a pragmatic trial? Probably not. Um, I don't think it's the best practice to do what we did in music. Um, I think you really should have some uh, efficacy evidence to even start the pilot phase of um, a pragmatic trial. Um, but I do think in the nursing home setting that might be, you know, more real world efficacy or, you know, there's different ways to think about in a complex population um, that there might be some benefits to at least having real world efficacy evidence before you even start the pilot. So this is a bit of a do as I say, do as we say, not as we did. Um, but I do think that uh, it would be, it's definitely important to have buy-in. Uh, I don't think that you want to do, and you want to bring, even think about piloting an intervention that doesn't have that level of buy-in. Um, what's the point if it's not aligning with stakeholder interests? Um, and I think you can refine your protocol during your pilot phase and certainly your measurement strategy, I would argue, um, but you need to know it's safe. And I would, unlike in music and memory, I think you should know it's efficacious. Great. Thank you. So let's move on to talk about um, some outcome measures and you have quite a few. Um, but first, let me ask you about um, the behavior measures. One is um, an MDS, minimum data set based uh, behavior measure that's ascertained on the federally mandated MDS um, quarterly by um, all the time by nursing homes, so it's existing data, versus the Cohn-Mansfield Agitation Index, which is a, um, a primary data collection uh, tool that you added into your trial. Um, you found in the pilot, you did this because in the pilot, um, you found that there um, wasn't great correlation, but not correlation, but the MDS unreported behavior, whereas when you tried to ascertain it using the CMAI, um, you got more uh, prevalence of behavior problems. Um, so I'm sort of wondering what this means uh, for the pragmatic trial and using the MDS. I mean, obviously for a pragmatic trial, it's, it's, it's better to use existing data that's already collected for administrative or clinical reasons, but um, you found a flaw in that. And I guess it one, I'm wondering what it means for other pragmatic trials based in the nursing home and whether um, for similar outcomes or other MDS-based outcomes if we feel this type of prior validation is needed. And um, also, I was just wondering, had there ever been some validation before of this behavior measure against the CMAI before you guys did it? Right, so those are good questions. Um, so I think what we did find in, as you say, um, with the MDS measures of behavior. So the MDS measures of behaviors, agitated and aggressive behaviors, which we're now calling reactive aggressive behaviors. Um, the, do the, four, the three items that are on the MDS are actually that correspond to the domains in the CMAI. So even though the tools um, are different, and uh, we do suspect under detection in the MDS. They are, you know, the MDS was is a derivative of the CMAI. Those items were added 
um, to mirror the domains of the gold standard measure, which is the Cohen-Mansfield Agitation Inventory. And the reason that that's important, kind of to your latter point, is that when they were developing the current version of the minimum data set, the third version, um, Deb Saliba and her colleagues did compare directly for the same people over the same week the minimum data set measures and the CMAI, the gold standard measure. Um, and so to answer your question about whether it has been done before, yes, it has. It was done during the validation of the minimum data set um, by the RAND researchers. And basically what they found, so theirs wasn't, their validation population was 418 long-stay nursing home residents, but it wasn't specific to people with advanced dementia. So the percentages are a little bit lower of what, than what we would see if we really focused on the population of interest in our study, but it gives you an idea. What they found was um, only about, in using the MDS data, 5% of long-stay residents had any physically agitated behaviors in the past week, compared to 6% in, on the gold standard measure had any physically aggressive behaviors in the past week. So those numbers are very close. But where they found the difference was when they looked at verbal behaviors directed towards others, they found about 7% had any of those types of behaviors on the minimum data set compared to 12% on the gold standard measure. And when they looked at other types of behaviors that weren't really directed at anyone, like tapping, pacing, um, other types of uh, internally agitated behaviors, they found 6% had any types of those behaviors on the MDS compared to 14% on the gold standard measure. So what this tells us is that these two measures have been compared, and what we know is that particularly for non-severe, quote-unquote, behaviors, so verbal behaviors directed towards others and other types of agitated behaviors, the MDS suffers from underdetection, so the behaviors are not um, recorded in the MDS by about half. So uh, a little bit of a different question. Um, I know you said yesterday you spent a fair bit of time yourself in the pilot facilities um, doing some of this work, and I know that you're, you're a PhD, you're a non-clinician, and I wonder what it was like for you to actually go into the nursing home and, and see uh, these residents and where you're actually applying this research um, from a, a non-clinician standpoint and if that, sort, if that experience shaped your way, either you're looking at this trial or the type of research we're trying to do in the collaboratory. So going into the sites was great for me. I mean, it was a really great experience. I probably... Um, I was in nursing homes because I was part of the evaluation team for the Quapi demonstration project in Minnesota, but this was, you know, um, another, I think that everybody who's doing an implementation study should have to go into the nursing homes and um, at least be there for a couple of days. Uh, it was very uh, eye-opening to me, not just to understand what the barriers to doing the intervention were. Um, for example, like I went at baseline and then I went back, you know, four to six months later and, you know, there were there was one site where the equipment was still in the box or they I went out and um, they told me they couldn't download any music for the entire four months because they don't have Internet. And, you know, they, there's there's all these things that you learn when you're um, have to actually go on site and um, be be there 
that you would you don't get um, sitting in an office. So it was a very good, humbling and good experience to me. The other piece that I uh, learned firsthand was what we are really asking in the data collection. So these staff interviews where you have to take nursing, frontline nursing staff off the floor um, are, are really a burden. Um, they're very, they're time consuming, they're hard. The, the staff isn't really trained to, the CNA staff were nervous about uh, co completing the surveys. Uh, it brought, you know, the raised their anxiety to have to sit with a researcher and answer questions. So I think um, just deciding how many people we really needed to have staff interviews for, how much time that was really going to take for staff off the floor for, um, was really part of what went into, you know, doing our power calculations. I wouldn't have, I would have said to do more if I hadn't actually been there and saw what it take to get to what kind of what a hardship it was to take staff off the floor to do those interviews. And I think just from the effect of the intervention um, perspective, you know, I was able to see uh, during the pilot some of the um, some of the some of the stories that you see in the documentary, like some of the uh, really exciting success stories. But I also saw, um, you know, residents for whom it didn't work or who they left, they forgot that they had put the iPod on and they kind of left them with it. And they, you know, I saw that they were, they didn't have the verbal capacity to tell them to take it off, but they started like, you know, patting the headphones off. So a lot of the ways we've designed our implementation best practice protocol is to really be aware of, you know, our approach to, you know, how you put the music on people, holding the headphones, making sure you only keep it on for 30 minutes, you know, check back with the person. So a lot of these like best practices actually came from seeing some mistakes in the pilot that were made by our pilot site. So I would encourage if you're doing any kind of study to um, in the pilot, go to the sites if you can and uh, visit them, see how they're both doing with the with how hard your measurement strategy is really to implement, how they're really doing with implementation and get some first hand knowledge of what the impact's going to be of the intervention. Great. Well, thank you. Uh, well, I think that's all the questions I have. Um, thank you very, very much for your insights, Ellen, and uh, we look forward to seeing the results from Music and Memory and wish you uh, luck as you're, you're in the implementation phase, and uh, I hope it all goes well for you. But thank you so much for sharing your experience. Thank you so much uh, for giving me the opportunity, and I hope, I hope we have some good news to share with you about music and memory, but either way, <laughs> we will learn a lot, I know, through this process that we can share, and to other folks that want to look at these non-drug interventions, hopefully um, we can share our experiences and using the different measures so that they can plan their, their trials. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to today's Impact Laboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Please be on the lookout for our next Grand Rounds and podcast next month.